Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Twenty first of January, Thursday. Waxing moon in a Russian sky. A flight of gulls high in clear air, turned into golden foil by the fire of a setting sun. This is the narrow boat Erica, reaching out across the night, canal side. Well, it's a hard frost is forming outside. I've a little pile of ginger nuts beside me, because on nights like this, sometimes ginger nuts are all you need. So I think we're ready to go. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? And I hope that you are faring January as, as best you can. I know that some people really love this time of year, while others find it very, very difficult. And there's also lots of other things going on as well, isn't there? And so I hope it's all going okay and it's not too difficult and you are flourishing. And well, we're nearing the end of the January now. And tomorrow is the 25th of January, which is St. Paul's Day. And it's another of those prognostication days that I mentioned last week in the last episode. And the weather law that is associated with the day is unusually exhaustive and perhaps points again to what I was mentioning last week about this need to, in some way, create a sense of certainty in a very uncertain world. And I'll, I'll read it to you. If St. Paul's Day be fair and clear, it doth betide a happy year. But if by chance it then should rain, it will make dear all kinds of grain. And if the clouds make dark the sky, then neat, or cattle, and fowls this year shall die. If blustering winds do blow aloft, then wars shall vex the realm full oft. I love these little pieces of law that have become part of our cultures. Not because they work, because quite often they don't. And even if they did work, we now live in a very different world. So, and climate is changing and dry spells are not necessarily as good today as they were in, say, medieval times. But they offer an insight into the relationship and the embeddedness of people and lives within their environment. And I'm really interested to know if you have any pieces of weather law that, particularly if it's local to you or handed down in your family. And there's a general one which I can remember dad and mum quite often quoting that as the days grow longer, 
the cold goes stronger. And that's a, that's a quite a, a famous and popular one. But if you've got any pieces of weather law, then please, I really love to know them and just drop me a line at nighttime on stillwaters at gmail.com or on the Facebook page or even message me on Instagram or Twitter. And it'd be lovely to just collect them. And I'm really interested, particularly if they're outside the UK. And recently I've just been looking at some of the weather law relating to the United States and seeing patterns of continuity, but also differences and that's really kind of interesting and it'd be, be nice to just sort of share parts of our own different heritages and cultures. Well, we've had yet one more storm, Storm Christoph, which came and went and we got off quite lightly here. I've seen pictures of waterways, rivers and some canal systems which are quite significantly flooded. Um, and even some photographs of boats hunkering, having to hunker down in river locks uh, to avoid them being swept away. And uh, they look quite frightening. As Christoph passed over, the air took on that rather strange quality, incredibly mild, rather unsettling and strangely uncomfortable, sort of almost sort of a prickly feel to it. Gusts of warm wind barreled wild and reckless down the bowl of fields to where we were moored, slamming against the boat. And for the most part, the rain was just wind-driven drizzle, persistent and wetting, but not that severe. And the sheep turned their backs to the wind and the ducks continued their never-ending hustle, looking exactly like card sharks in their sharp suits in some 1930s speakeasy. But it wasn't really until the Wednesday night that the rain came properly. And although the wind had abated, it was still very blustery and untamed. And when the rain came, it was just loosed in bucket loads as it drummed and hammered on the cabin roof. And I was expecting on the Thursday morning to have to pump out the engine bay. There was so much water, but actually it was surprisingly dry with just the the normal puddles at the bottom. And now the storm has gone, it's dragged down much colder air and tumultuous skies, the, the type of skies that rooks exult in. And the fields and the paths remain waterlogged and slick with mud. And though we've had now a couple of night frosts, it's meant that it's slightly easier morning walks and Penny and I can walk across the puddles on fractured glass. And the Met Office has been issuing warnings of frozen conditions. And that meant that I've been replenishing the, the water um, quite often, much more than I normally would, just to avoid the problems that we have of battling with frozen water pipes. But the year marches on and the season cycles continue. And I was talking of the rooks just a minute ago, and that reminded me of a poem that I read a couple of times on social media. Different people have been posting it. And it's written by another of my favourite poets, 
Edward Thomas, and it's called The Thaw. And it's a lovely reminder that sometimes we can't see the changes. They're so small or they're so slow. But the changes in the seasons, in the landscapes that we are part of, are still happening and occurring. The Thaw by Edward Thomas Over the land speckled with snow, half thawed, The speculating rooks at their nests cawed, And saw from elm tops, delicate as flowers of grass, What we below could not see, winter pass. I've been feeling a little bad recently because our old friend Nancy Jean Armstrong from Louisiana, who has been part of this podcast and listening to them right from the very first episode and has been unstinting in her support for them. And thank you, Nancy. And she's been asking lots of really, really good questions, questions that I wouldn't have thought about addressing. And I'm aware that actually United States, that there's a lot of interest in the UK canal systems. And although I'm aware that you do have canals over there, they tend to be a lot bigger and have a very different feel to them. And so there's there's quite a lot of interest generated in the UK canal systems. And I keep on saying to Nancy, oh, I'll answer the questions, I'll answer your questions in the next episode. And I keep putting them back. So I just want to finish this episode by answering a couple of her questions. And the first question is, is how deep are UK canals? Well, as always, the answer is a lot more complicated than the question. And really, it depends on the system itself. If we just take canals rather than rivers because obviously rivers will change and each river is individual to itself. And also bear in mind that sometimes canals and rivers combine. So it's not the fact that, you know, you're either on a canal system or a river system. The Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, which is really the regulating body, has a number of categories for inland waterway systems. Category A are canals and rivers that are less than 1.5 metres deep or generally about five foot deep. Category B are over 1.5 metres deep but do not exceed 0.6 metre waves. And the majority, and I think with the exception of something like the Manchester Ship Canal, which is a a very different type of canal system, all canals rather than rivers will fall into category A or B. So really you're talking about roughly a maximum of five feet deep. To be honest, most are much shallower. Canals are prone to two particular dangers. One is leakage 
and some canal systems are notoriously bad for leaking, particularly because of the geology. Um, and in fact, a couple of arms, which are, are kind of like small extensions off the the main canal system, have um, you know never have worked. So there's always been a fight to continue or to maintain water levels. And the other danger is drought. And so it's quite often, and I think I mentioned this in an earlier episode, the main problems with canals is not so much flooding, it's much more about drying up or lack of water. And it's a constant battle to maintain sufficient water levels. Narrowboats are flat hulled, and that means that they need surprisingly a little amount of water to cruise. For example, the Erica has a draft of just over two foot. I think it's about two foot two inches. It's probably a little bit lower than that now because we've added a lot more equipment into the into the boat. But that means that actually we can sail without much problems on three foot of water. So so really, if you're talking about three to four foot of water, that should be plenty for a narrow boat. Some narrow boats do have a, a, a lower draft. So that means if you do fall in, all you really need to do is just stand up, not panic, just stand up. Now, now you have to be careful in a lock. Locks are different. Locks can be very, very deep. You've also got current of water that can drag you down um, you don't want to fall into the lock but if you fall into the canal or you find yourself in the canal for one reason or another just stand up and I can vouch for this from personal experience when Donna Penny and I were taking out the boat for the very first time on our own we I had to go into the canal we got stuck um, on our maiden cruise of the Erica the um, the propeller took on some weed and jammed, so that needed to be cleared. That's not necessarily too much of a problem, but also the Morse lever, which is really your forward or your reverse gear lever, the bolt that it pivoted on came out and jammed, and so therefore I had no engine, and we were floating really in the middle of the canal, and... The only way I could think of getting the boat to the bank safely out of the way was to take off my shoes and socks and roll my trousers up and just go into the canal. Fortunately, it was an extreme, it was one of those beautiful early summer days where it was really hot. In fact, it was almost too hot. I got a bit of heat stroke, which again didn't really help. And so I waded my way through the canal and it really, it came up to about mid thigh. Um, and the only problem was that there is so much silt at the bottom that although it probably was, I should think three and a half foot deep, um, I sank down probably another well over my ankles in this really sort of glutinous mud that is at the bottom. And that, that could be dangerous um, if you kind of got stuck in it, in, in, in it. But for all intents and purposes, canals are not deep uh, and they're not something that you need to worry about by not being able to swim. Uh, again, as long as you are 
not in a kind of particularly deep canal or in a lock situation. I mentioned the silt that covers the bottom of the canal, and that really answers another of Nancy's questions, and that is, do canals need dredging? And the answer to that is a lot more simple. It's a categoric yes. They need it desperately. And although winter is the main time that the Canal and River Trust are involved in dredging and will do most of their work, it really is a, a, an all-year-round activity, and you will see dredgers and dredging boats out all the time. So if you do cruise on the canals, water depth is always something that you need to bear in mind. It's, canals tend to be shallower towards the edges. So the, the deepest parts of the canal are pretty much always in the center. So you cruise where it's deepest. In other words, you cruise down the middle, the center of the canal, and if you meet a boat coming in the opposite direction, you then pass on the right and then go back to the center line. And that's something that took me a little while to get used to, and I was got a bit uncomfortable because I kind of felt I was hogging the canal until I, first of all, recognized that actually how shallow sometimes the edges were and that's where you do get problems fouling the, the propeller and picking up all sorts of weed and other litter. So the main principle is keep to the centre of the canal wherever possible. Again canal widths tend to differ depending upon the particular canal system and actually even on a particular canal you will find stretches that are quite wide and other stretches which are quite narrow. Because canals developed really as private enterprises on a rather ad hoc piecemeal basis, there is no universal standard gauge for a canal. So this is why Different canals have very different characteristics, which actually makes cruising them really interesting because they have different flavours to them. Sue Wilkes makes the argument that it was the construction of the Harecastle Tunnel by Brindley on the Grand Trunk Canal and his decision to cut a tunnel that was nine foot wide, predominantly because of financial concerns that created the narrowboat, because it effectively meant that only a narrowboat could actually navigate that whole canal. And so then she argues this gives birth to the seven-foot-wide boat. Nancy also asks about how many boats are there on the canal. Uh, and again, a really good question. And the CRT, the Canal and River Trust, claim that there are over 34,000 boats. Now, not all of them are narrow boats, and certainly not all are liverboards. Many will be hire boats, leisure boats, day boats, um, cruisers, etc. An article in the Financial Times in 2016 made the claim that about a quarter of boats on the canal were permanent homes. You don't have to specifically apply to live aboard. 
you do have to have a license for your boat, but that applies whether you live aboard or not and notify where your boat is either being kept or is based. So you will, on your license, declare where your boat is and whether you are continuous cruising. In other words, you're not based in one particular point. Well, my supply of ginger biscuits is getting depleted and the thunderous snores of Penny is telling me that the time is going. And I look out through the window and I see that first few flakes of snow are beginning to fall. And that's probably a good time to call it the night and to sign off, wishing you all a very good night. So this is Narrowboat Erica signing off for the night and wishing you a very good night. Good night. Temperature outside minus 1.7. Inside. 26 degrees. Humidity, 96%. Dew point, minus 2.1 degrees. Wind direction, west. Wind strength, 5 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 994.2 rising slowly. Precipitation, one millimeter. Moon phase, 77.2%. Waxing gibbous. Day length, eight hours, 39 minutes. Sunset, 1637. Skycasting, 758. Mm-hmm.